ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. So happy you could join me. So happy you could join my friend Miles Simmons of NBC Sports um, for our weekly delving into the news of the NFL. So obviously, this is sort of the official start of the offseason. Miles and I in the second half of the podcast are going to look into the big stories of the offseason. The fate of Lamar Jackson, the fate of Aaron Rodgers. Who's going to play quarterback for the Jets? Who's going to play quarterback for the Raiders? Uh, a couple of interesting things about how those relate to eventually what the NFL does with the 2023 schedule. Who signs Derek Carr? What is the fate of Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley? Um, we'll talk a little bit about the draft, although next week, uh, Miles will be in Indianapolis as we record the podcast. We are going to record the podcast with Miles in Indianapolis and before I get to Indianapolis uh, next week. And then the week after that, we'll have a full review of all things Scouting Combine. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about the draft this week and how it looks like Jalen Carter of Georgia appears to be the odds-on favorite for the first pick, unless the Bears actually trade the pick. And um, and then we'll talk about the fate of Bryce Young, the quarterback of Alabama who appears, appears to be in line to be the first quarterback picked in this draft. So in the first part of our pod today, our guest, by the way, is going to be T.J. Watt of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I recorded this with him during Super Bowl week about some timeless elements about uh, T.J. Watt, J.J. Watt, the Watt family, uh, and all things Steelers, which um, I'm sure there will be a few of those in the audience who who want to hear that. Um, Miles and I are going to start off today by discussing uh, the new round of minority hires, or should we say mostly non-minority hires in coaching in the NFL. We're going to discuss the lesson of Kansas City out coaching Philadelphia, what it means for the other 31 teams in the league, and how I believe it's going to lead to just more and more long hours for coaches and more and more R&D for these coaches in the NFL because they see what it did 
for Andy Reid in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. The state of what's happening in Washington, uh, Miles and I will discuss, and whether Daniel Snyder indeed is going to basically divest himself of the franchise. So that's sort of where we are. Miles, I guess I should start off uh, welcoming you to the podcast, but also, yeah, I've been really curious. We haven't discussed much about what the minority hiring record this year really means. We, we've, we've referred to it a bit, but I want to really delve into it a little bit this week. And I want to get your thoughts on the fact that, you know, right now there are uh, four black coaches, head coaches in the NFL, uh, two other minority coaches in the NFL out of 32 for all the time and energy the NFL has spent on this issue. The results just aren't there. How do you view it? Well, you're right. I mean, it's just simply that, that the results just aren't there. And, you know, what I just continue to go back to in my mind is that the owners are going to do what they want to do, irrespective of all of the programs that are put in place or all of the discussion that comes about. I mean, think about last year when you had Byron Leftwich, who was supposedly the top candidate for the Jacksonville Jaguars, right? They end up hiring Doug Peterson. And obviously, hiring Doug Peterson turned out to be a very good move for them. But at that introductory press conference, you had the Jaguars owner, Shad Khan, basically saying, well, yeah, we really should do something about this with this whole minority hiring problem. And it's like, well, dude, you are the one who could help be the solution by hiring a minority coach and you didn't do it. So even though things can work out in that way, it's like, well, the owners want to try to pass the buck off to somebody else. It's like, you know, I can hire who I want, but you know, you over there, uh, you're also in my division. Why don't you do something about this? And, and it's just this weird sort of element of, well, we could do something, but eh, I don't really want to be the one to do it. And you now you have the coaching or the accelerator program. And I guess it's not just for coaches, right? Because obviously it's for executives as well. And the only hire that comes out of that is Rand Carthon, which is great. It's better to have one than zero. But at the same time, when you then have all of the other positions that are open, and that's the one result that you can point to. It's like, man, is that really the intention of what the accelerator program was? I don't know. And then you look at what happens with the Arizona Cardinals, right? They hire a 40-year-old white head coach. They hire a 35-year-old white offensive coordinator. They hire a 29-year-old white defensive coordinator. And I'm not saying that any one of those people are unqualified for their jobs. But at the same time, when you look at that in the totality of what the National Football League is, it's kind of hard not to raise an eyebrow at what those results are. So I guess that's a, a little summation of where my mind is, at least as we begin, you know, this part of the off season. Well, you know, what I thought of when I, I spoke with Jonathan Gannon on Sunday. And so Jonathan Gannon basically in his, um, you know, in his hiring process, Okay, you know, there was a period in that hiring process when it appeared that in Arizona, the final two were Mike Kafka, uh, the quarterback coach, or I'm sorry, the offensive coordinator 
of the New York Giants, former quarterback coach under Andy Reid, former NFL quarterback, and uh, Lou Anarumo, the defensive coordinator of the Cincinnati Bengals, whose uh, defensive schemes had helped beat uh, the Kansas City uh, offense in three of their last four meetings. But Gannon gets the job. And, Miles, when I heard uh, Tom Pelissero reported and we discussed it, uh, you know, when I talked to Jonathan Gannon on Sunday, one of the things that he did basically was go back to what he knew, okay? And by that I mean going back to the Minnesota Vikings coaching staff that Jonathan Gannon was a part of, okay, before he went to uh, Indianapolis and then to Philadelphia on those coaching staffs. When he was in Minnesota, two of the guys on his staff uh, were two of the guys they ended up hiring as their offensive and defensive coordinators. The offensive coordinator, obviously, Drew Petzing, uh, came from more immediately from Cleveland as quarterback coach, but he was on the Minnesota Vikings coaching staff, and he got friendly, obviously, with Gannon in Minnesota. And also on that coaching staff in Minnesota, Nick Rollis, uh, who uh, Gannon hired as his defensive coordinator. So this is one of the issues that the NFL has identified and discussed and talked about that you hire who you know. Mm -hmm. And in this particular case, Jonathan Gannon was on Mike Zimmer's coaching staff in Minnesota. And he hired two guys who he worked with there every day and who he got to know and appreciate and respect. So a few years later, he says, who am I going to hire? As my coordinators, it could well be, quite honestly, that at one point in the time that he was interviewing for jobs, he told Petsing and Rollis basically that, hey, listen, if I get a job, I want you to come with me. That's the way the world works. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that is what stands in the way of so much of the advancement of black and minority coaches in the NFL. First of all, there aren't that very many of them in authority positions in the NFL. So when guys go to hire who they want to hire, many times because they're, they, they don't have you know a huge presence on a lot of these coaching staffs, they're going to hire somebody who they knew, uh, somebody who they know, And I think that becomes almost a self-defeating prophecy in trying to advance, you know, the role of minority coaches. And, And the other thing I would say, Miles, is I think what also happens is in hiring who you know, that's one of the reasons why owners have been encouraged to meet with minority candidates at league meetings, at, 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 you know, at other events during the course of the year. And I think it's really good of the league. I think it's progressive of the league. I think it's going to take time for that to bear fruit. But 
it sure seems like there's so much more of the same this offseason. Jim Bob Cooter gets the offensive coordinator job in Indianapolis. Uh, you know, obviously, you, you hire someone either who you know or who has been out there on the vine, who has done these jobs before, who's a veteran of the coaching uh, fraternity. And so, and that's why things just don't change. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look at the, the coaches who ostensibly, at least in my mind, have proven themselves capable of doing what it is that they need to do to advance in the coaching profession. Steve Wilkes, right? Goes six and six as the Carolina Panthers interim head coach gets passed over for that job for Frank Reich. Fine. But he's got to go now and be a defensive coordinator for San Francisco. And I credit Kyle Shanahan for hiring him. I mean, obviously he is qualified to do that job. Right. And they want to keep things um, mostly the same when it comes to having a four, three base defense and all that. And that's what Steve Wilkes runs. And we all know that those things are great. But why wasn't Steve Wilkes considered for any more jobs when he did the job that he did with Matt Rule's team over the course of the 2022 season? And look at the quarterbacks he had to coach with. P.J. Walker, Baker Mayfield, who was arguably the worst starting quarterback in the NFL this year before he was released and then ended up with the Los Angeles Rams. Sam Darnold. I mean, these are not, you know, the uh, battering Ram, which is a, maybe a terrible choice of words there, but th- these are not great quarterbacks we're talking about here. You know, Eric Bieniemy now has to go to Washington to be the offensive coordinator and, quote, run the show, unquote. Uh, what what are we doing here? You know, when Doug Peterson and Matt Nagy have had that same role and then advanced to head coaching jobs. So I, I don't really know what to do about it, Peter. I, I really don't. I mean, because like I said, owners and other coaches are going to do what they want to do and they're going to go with who they're comfortable with. And, and until until people, I guess, get comfortable with the fact that there are black coaches out there who can do these jobs and do them well, then this is where we're going to continue to be. Look, um, you know, we're going to move on after this because I don't know that there's anything that we can say or we can propose, even though I proposed in my column that if I were Roger Goodell, uh, it's, it's almost like, you know, this is not, uh, this is not necessarily a slap in the face to Troy Vincent. Um, you know, the NFL executive vice president who is sort of become the, um, you know, the, the, the front person in the league, uh, for all efforts to improve this effort. And they also have a big DEI presence now in the uh, in the NFL office, but I, I think they ought to replace Troy Vincent. I think they ought to get a new front person for this job. I think they ought to scour industry, uh, come up with somebody who might have new ideas. Uh, and I don't think that it's time to just say, well, you know, uh, it was a bad year this year, but we think the programs in place we have right now are working. I think there's one thing the NFL has done in recent years that could really help. And that is mandating uh, one minority coach on the offensive side of the ball be hired by every team in the league last year. 
So it's not like this is not instant coffee where that's going to work overnight. But I have to believe that some of these coaches are going to go into their teams. They're, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven coaches could emerge from this program of, you know, just getting their foot in the door. And that is something that a lot of black coaches over the years have said, we just simply don't have the opportunity. Okay. So 32 minority coaches right now do have an opportunity. Now, obviously in some cases it's probably going to be, I don't want, I mean, it's too strong to say a sham job, but they might not be taken as seriously as they are in other places. So, but I just think that needs a year or two or three to bear fruit, to try to bear some fruit in this. But otherwise, you know, if I were Roger Goodell, I would shake it up and I would just simply continue to tell the owners in this league and quite honestly, the coaches in the league who hire, continue to hire an overwhelming number of white minority coordinators that we simply have to be exposed to more people, more coaches in this business. So anyway, yes. let's just I, move on. I, I, I have uh, this. Yeah, good. Let me add this one thing, Peter, or two things, I guess. I, I will give Frank Wright credit. He hired Thomas Brown, rising coach from the Los Angeles Rams, who was the assistant head coach and tight ends coach last year, also worked with running backs there with the Rams. So he is now the, the Carolina Panthers offensive coordinator. So you got to give him credit where it's due, I suppose, there. And also the San Francisco 49ers have been developing minority candidates, not just for coaching positions, but also for GM positions. And with this um, advent of also getting third round compensatory picks for these coaching positions and for these executive positions, the 49ers have taken advantage of that more than any other team. Right. Because you see the minority coaches that continue to come through there. You got Robert Sala. Now D'Amico Ryans is another one. You know, Martin Mayhew, um, the general manager of uh, the Washington Commanders. He comes from there. Rand Carthon comes from there. And then he goes to the Titans. So there are candidates that are ripe to be picked from these ranks. Right. And if you have more of that 49ers model where you're really developing those men and women, then that is something that you can take advantage of and then have more draft picks. So more teams should be like the 49ers. I couldn't agree more because it worked for them uh, as they developed a very good roster. And it also worked for them when strong candidates left uh, to take head coaching jobs and to become general managers. So you're obviously it works and, and, you know, it won't work if we're talking about, you know, a team that is, you know, three and 14 every year, but it's going to work if you have faith in what you're doing. And if you put good people in charge, Uh, Kyle Shanahan has done that. John Lynch has done it. Jed York has done it. And, uh, and so anyway, I think that they should be held up as a beacon for other teams to follow. I'll give you another beacon for other teams, and this won't surprise anyone, but the way Andy Reid coached in the Super Bowl, I think, and the way he develops uh, how his playbook works 
and the way he develops uh, his game plan, I think is well worth considering. And this comes from my Monday column of this week. And I think it is something that every team in the league <clears throat> should know. And quite honestly, the, you know, I'm not here blowing my horn about my column. But what I am saying is that this is something that every team in the NFL should read and understand. And I'm just going to read it to you right now, Miles. Um, when I talked to Jonathan Gannon on Sunday, he really fell on the sword for the two plays in the fourth quarter. The reverse motion touchdown pass to Kadarius Toney. And one series later, three minutes later, the reverse motion touchdown pass on the other side of the field to Sky Moore. They were two of the 16 most wide open touchdown throws of the 2022 football season. And it's amazing when you think about it. The last two touchdowns of this season were two of the most wide open plays, diagrammed, diagnosed, or put into play, excuse me, by any team in the NFL this year. And they did it against a team that had had a superb defense through the course of the year, the Philadelphia Eagles. And I want to just read one thing about uh, the Kadarius Tony touchdown, okay? Which, uh, you know, as you know, has been called corn dog uh, by Andy Reid. So I'm going to read this to you right now. I can't fall the Eagles players and coaches for corn dog. How could Philadelphia have seen this coming? Kansas City had called it one time all season. In the second quarter of the season opener, in this same stadium against the Cardinals, on the 23rd offensive snap of Kansas City's season. In the next 77 quarters, exactly 1,242 snaps over 19 games, Andy Reid never called this jet motion reverse again until he called it twice in the span of four plays in the fourth quarter of the biggest game of the year. And the reason I bring this up is that I think there's a tremendous lesson for every team in the league on this. And that is one thing that Andy Reid has done as a play designer and a play caller is to be very inclusive. And he's got a lot of coaches on his staff who've been there with him for years. And essentially, all except when Matt Nagy left for four years, every one of them of of any import has been there during Patrick Mahomes' full career in Kansas City. They all know how the drill works. I explained in my column this week that there is a huge whiteboard in the uh, in the office suite of Andy Reid. And I saw the whiteboard three years ago. In fact, d- during the week before the Super Bowl three years ago. And there was at least 30 plays, might have been more, written on there in all different handwriting, in all different colors 
uh, you know, of, uh, you know, marker on the whiteboard. And Andy Reid told me that day, you know, hey, we're a democracy here. You know, everybody has a voice. Uh, and when I talked to Matt Nagy about this last week, he said he's exactly right. We call it the beautiful mind board. We can all go in and put plays in there and then we discuss them and whether they would actually work in this particular week's game plan. The only reason I bring that up is that the combination of the number of plays that go on in Randy in Andy Reid's mind, you know, this sort of John Nash from A Beautiful Mind, that movie of whatever, six or eight years ago. You know, all this stuff is percolating in Andy Reid's head. And I'm not saying he's the only one who's a playmeister. I mean, Sean McVay, Shanahan, and so many coaches in the league. Mike Tomlin on defense, I think, you know, has a lot of plays percolating in his brain at all times. But the thing that I am saying is that Andy Reid has the faith in his players and his coaches to go 1,242 plays without running this at all. And then on a slippery field in the biggest play of the year, understanding that it would be fully understandable if Sky Moore or Kadarius Tony slipped and fell while on this, uh, you know, jet motion, which is a sprint, then you stop in your tracks and sprint back. Uh, he's got the confidence to call that twice within five snaps. Both times it works for a touchdown. And my, to me, the lesson is the playbook cannot be too deep too dense. It can't have too many plays in it. And you should always be willing to take a chance in the biggest times of the year with a play you have not run in 19 games because you think in this particular case against a man defense in the tight red zone is going to work. He did it twice. It worked twice. It was a slam dunk twice. The, the two things that you put in your column about those things that I love were a when Gannon said Jesus Christ wouldn't have stopped that touchdown because just the defense that we yeah. were in I thought that that was great and also when Travis Kelsey noted to Kadarius Tony you got to be under control because of how that field was slipping it just kind of tells you all of the different elements that go into making the Kansas City Chiefs great. You know, we understand what Patrick Mahomes does, what Andy Reid does. But when you have somebody like Travis Kelsey, who, yeah, is going to be out there screaming, you got to fight for your right to party. He also is one of the key leaders on that offense that makes sure everybody knows exactly what they have to do. You know, so I, I loved everything about that. I thought that was great. I, I just hope that. People in the NFL, and I know that it's a worker bee society, and I get that. But I think if you have a quarterback you trust, if you have a coaching staff you trust, and if you have a brain that you trust and you're calling plays, don't fear calling something you haven't called in five months. You know, if you think against this particular defense, it's going to work. Hey, try it, do it. And, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily want to get into this little asterisk on this, but tell you, everything you need to know about Patrick Mahomes 
on that Skymore touchdown pass. Okay, there's two amazing things about it. As the clock ran down 5-4-3, Andy Reid was trying to call timeout, but he didn't get it in in time because he noted that Travis Kelsey was lined up on the wrong side of the field. He should have been lined up on the left side. Instead, he was lined up snug right to the right tackle. The reason that everybody wanted him on the left side was they wanted him to be sort of a screen, a beard, uh, a rub for uh, basically for Sky Moore if it was needed on that side. And Mahomes said basically, screw it. I think I can beat this because I sense that I'm going to get zero blitzed. They're not going to have time Mm -hmm. to cover. I definitely will have at least one guy open on this. And as I wrote, imagine this. Patrick Mahomes, this was the, I don't know, I think 1142nd play that Jonathan Gannon had called on defense this year for Philadelphia. And of all those plays, this was only the eighth time that he ever zero blitzed. Eight times all season he zero blitzed. And on this one, it caused the most one of the most open receptions of this year. So look, Andy Reid, this just in, he's pretty smart. Okay, last thing before we get to TJ Watt. I I sense more and more Nikki Javala, the Washington Post, has reported now two of the candidates to buy the Washington Commanders have come into the building now and have been given the freedom to walk around the building in Ashburn, Virginia, uh, look over the stadium in Landover, Maryland, and basically see what it is that they would be buying. This, as I was told by somebody in the league during Super Bowl week, is not the sign of a guy who's selling a part of the team. This is a sign of the guy who's going to be selling the team. And Miles, it appears that the long national nightmare, not national nightmare, the quarter century nightmare of Daniel Snyder's ownership in Washington could be uh, very close to being on the way out. And as somebody else from the league told me, you think it's coincidental that it's taken now more than a year for Mary Jo White to do this investigation? What if, for instance, Daniel Snyder has told Roger Goodell, hey, go easy on the, uh, on the bloodhounds investigating everything. I'm, I'm selling this team. You know, you don't have to worry about me anymore. So maybe in exchange for Snyder saying I'm selling the team, maybe, maybe, I don't know this, but it's logical. They've put the investigation on sort of a slow play. But anyway, whatever, however it happens, you know, the best news for any football fan uh, in the nation's capital is that it appears, appears that Daniel Snyder uh, is going to be selling his team and not just a part of it. Yeah, and thank goodness for that. I mean, he's a scourge on the league, you know, and I think we all know that. And, you know, all the allegations that have come out, regardless of whether Mary Jo White's investigation is done, going to be finished soon, whatever it is, you know, I I think that everybody believes that, that the league would benefit if Daniel Snyder were no longer the owner of the Washington franchise. So, 
you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, but you know, if the sooner that sale could get completed, the better. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney world? Like, Hey, we came to play. Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play at Walt Disney world resort. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Miles, let's transition to TJ Watt. This is a conversation I had with the uh, 2021 NFL Defensive Player of the Year uh, during Super Bowl week. Um many of these interviews that you do during Super Bowl week are in exchange for the plug of a product, uh, which happens at the end of this Watt uh, conversation. So uh, cope with that and listen to T.J. Watt, the outstanding pass rusher of the Pittsburgh Steelers. So we're back with T.J. Watt of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And T.J., probably the overriding thing toward the end of this season with the Pittsburgh Steelers that totally fascinated me. Mike Tomlin bit my head off in training camp when I suggested that maybe, possibly, perhaps, this could be the first year that his Pittsburgh Steelers did not have, you know, a non-losing season, you know. Or, I'm sorry, had a losing season after all these years. Tell me, why... Were you guys able, through a bunch of hiccups during the season, to finish the year so strong and to be, even though at the end you're not playing for anything, still playing like it's the seventh game of the World Series? Because he got guys to buy in, and we all believed in each other. And we knew that the product that we were putting out on the field wasn't a reflection of how hard we were working. And uh, it, it came in a lot of different ways, a lot of different types of meetings. Um, different ways of motivating different guys and that's something that coach t is is so good at and it was with a lot of padded practices um and just guys buying in more than anything and as the weeks got on as you start to win one game two games down the stretch um you realize that we can hang with the best of them and we just started to get more and more confidence we just kind of ran out of time at the end um I wonder, you you had two rookies, the rookie quarterback and the rookie, rookie wide receiver. And what I found so interesting about watching Kenny Pickett, you know, you always hear this about rookie quarterbacks, that, you know, they really do get better as the year went along. And by the end of the season, I said, I actually think this guy might be the answer. You know, he might be the quarterback here for a long time. And obviously, uh, George Pickens was was really good from day one, kind of probably allowed you to trade uh, Chase Claypool. Tell me from the other side of the line what you saw in those two guys. Guys that came to work every day, 
worked hard. I think George, George Pickens is one of those guys that's like, I don't know if he really understands how good he is. It's like, holy cow, some of the things that you see in practice. Um, the, just, but it's also on top of that, it's the little things, like finishing plays, running. He can run for days. Kenny Pickett uh, getting better each and every week, uh, commanding two-minute drills back, back in training camp. Um, you can just see the progression. Then you come to the Ravens game um, down the stretch where he was able to lead the team down the field. And uh, we just had feeling that, hey, we're going to score this, we're going to get on defense, and uh, we're going to win this game. So it's just little things like that that it's all about gaining respect through teammates, through work, and uh, those guys came to work every day. You bring up the Ravens, and I've always gotten such a great kick out of going to Steelers-Ravens games because they feel like the old days where players hated each other's guts. And everything now is so friendly in so many ways with, with a lot of teams. But I'm just curious, why is that rivalry so sort of everlasting? What is it about Steelers-Ravens that makes it particularly intense? I think it's with the history. You go back and a lot of the, we always talk about a lot of the rules where the lowering the helmet or hitting over the middle of the field, a lot of those were instituted because of Steelers-Ravens games. And I think it's just kind of been passed on from uh, team to team over the years. We have so many former players that always come around. Uh, That's the great thing about being a Pittsburgh Steeler. You have so many former greats that are willing to come back and give their time to the team and let you know, like, hey, this isn't just a regular week. This is Baltimore Ravens week. So uh, a lot of intensity always into those games. Um, I wanted to ask you two things about this game in particular. Um, I wonder just from the sense of being a football player, when you watched Patrick Mahomes, and I don't know how closely, did you watch the AFC Championship game? A little bit. Yeah. Uh, not, not as attentively as if like my brother was playing it, but yeah, I, I yeah. had it on for sure. But I find it, you know, the week before the game, Tom Brady called Mahomes, and he said to him, you know, when he knew he was playing with the, the high ankle sprain and, you know, kind of bitching out Andy Reid on the sidelines, <laughs> telling him, you're not taking me out of this game and all that. I find it that that's like what, uh, something like what Brady would do. And Brady actually called Mahomes and said, basically, that's what I'm talking about. That's what champions do, playing games like this when everybody's telling them, go get x-rayed, go do this. Just from a professional pride point of view, when you watch another player do that, does it prompt a lot of respect from you? Or do you think that practically everybody does it and it's no big deal? It's hard to say because everybody's different. Uh, it's, there's definitely a respect aspect of it, and it's also understanding that how short this window is to A, play football, but to B, play contending football, and to have an opportunity to be to go to the Super Bowl and, and to be playing in these big games. So it's, it is a respect thing, and it's if you're in that situation, you hope that you can gut it out as best as you possibly can, but it's also the same thing where if a guy's not out there, it lets you know that the guy is in really bad shape. Yeah. So I think it's a little bit of both. We were talking before we started about Juju Smith-Schuster, and I said, wow, I don't know how they're going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. <laughs> I saw him walk off the field, and walk is a relative term. He was being helped off the field, and I said, man, how's he going to be ready to play in two weeks? But you saw a lot of that in Pittsburgh out of Juju. Yeah, I have all the respect in the world for Juju, uh, especially as a football player and as a teammate. 
Um, I know a lot of people always see the viral videos and the TikToks, and, but the guy loves football. He loves his teammates. He works hard. And uh, guys are always putting their bodies on the line. And uh, I, I feel like sometimes people don't realize how hard uh, a full NFL season is on your body. And like, like you were saying about Juju, putting them back together, quote-unquote, um, he's going to do whatever it is possibly takes to be as healthy as possible, not just for himself but for his team, to put them in the best position to win the game. I thought it was so cool this year. I saw him in training camp, and he was just, like, totally effervescent. You know, he th- I mean, he loved playing with Ben, obviously, but he loved being with Mahomes in part because he was learning every spot on the line. He was playing wide. He's even, you know, playing, obviously, in the slot. But he strikes me as the type of guy you want guys like that on your team because he just enjoys life and enjoys football. Yeah, I mean... Like I said, you only have so much time to play this game. And some, sometimes you have to remind yourself that, hey, I am living the dream. I am getting paid <laughs> handsomely to play a game that if I was a child, I would be the happiest in the world that I'm doing what I'm doing. And so many people would give their left arm to be playing in the National Football League, to be playing these big-time games, and to be doing what you love for a living. And that's why it's, it's so fun to see guys that understand that and appreciate that and love to practice, love to grind. And uh, stuff like that is contagious in a building. And I think that's what you see with Juju. Knowing your brother the way you do um, and knowing that obviously he had the same affection for football that you have right now, obviously. And your brother, J.J. Watt, retired uh, at the end of this season. What do you think he's going to miss the most about playing football? I mean, you obviously know that, I mean, the locker room, the guys, the, the relationships, the camaraderie of being a part of something bigger than yourself, but it's also the continuous chase for something. Um, that's what you talk about when guys get out of the NFL. It's like you have to find something to chase to motivate you because you're no longer going to having a workout where you're pushing through, and it's that's what I ask him now. I'm like, what are you doing an extra rep for? Like, what, <laughs> what's the reasoning? Now you can skip reps. Now you can you don't have to worry about it. So that's that's a question. Is that, he still working out like a banshee? Oh, of course he's working out like a banshee. I'm like, his his brother-in-law is Brian Cushion, and they were working out yeah. together in Houston the other day, and I was like, that's not good. You guys are just going to push yourself until <laughs> someone gets hurt or something bad happens, and there's going to be no explanation for it as to why you pushed yourself so hard because you don't have a game coming up. So uh, it, it's funny. You'd have to ask him that question. Do you think he's going to be tempted if somebody would ring his phone in late August? Will he be tempted to come back? I don't know. I, I really don't think so, but that's a question for him. I don't, I don't know the, the honest answer to that. Yeah. One more football thing, and then we'll get to Invisalign, because obviously everyone is watching this to make sure they learn about T.J. Watt and Invisalign. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really kind of fascinated by the Kelsey brothers. Mm -hmm. And we have talked in the past about how important it was to have both Derek and JJ in your life because they were people who you saw who were doing what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And if they can do it, why can't I do it? I eat the same cereal as they do and all that stuff. And the Kelseys are so interesting because there's obviously a little bit of an age gap, but I wonder, what is it about, do you think, about brothers, and particularly in football, where you see your brother do it and you push yourself and you know that you can do it? 
Yeah, it's it's through all the competition through growing up. Um, we our house was the competitive house. So I and I was the youngest. So I, JJ is five and a half older than me. Derek's two years older than me. So it was constantly being around competition and always being knocked on my butt and having to get up and dust myself off and try to compete again. And as you get older, you realize that that's the kind of stuff that shaped you. And you realize that, yes, your brothers were giving you a hard time all throughout life, but at the end of the day, as you get older, they're willing to mentor you and let you in on all the secrets and things that are going to make you better. And um, I give Jade and Derek a lot of credit. They could have kept all their knowledge themselves and uh, said, figure it out yourself. But they opened the door to me, and they showed me the blueprint to how to be a successful athlete, how to be a successful person handling the media uh, in the community, to be able to give back. And um, not many people get that opportunity to, A, get to witness it, but B, get to be able to try to live it as well, following in their footsteps. And um, just forever grateful for my brothers and our relationship. So a lot of times we see athletes who come to the Super Bowl <coughs> and they are representing company X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And, but they're representing the company, but they're not necessarily using the product. You actually, you're here for Invisalign. Yes. And, and, and you actually use the product. Explain to me, for people who've heard of Invisalign, don't know what it is, explain to me how you got involved and why you're using it. Yeah, so I'm actually wearing my uh, Invisalign aligners right now. It's, it's hard to tell that you're wearing them. You can't um, even see that, it. That's one of the nice things about it. it is uh, a lot of guys in the locker room have um, teeth treatment, whether it's braces or whether it's Invisalign aligners, and I knew I wanted to fix my uh, teeth so that when I came and spoke to you, I wasn't all self-conscious <laughs> and uh, able to speak. But it was just with braces, you had those emergency appointments that you have to deal with. And as a football player, I don't have time to be able to do those emergency appointments, especially if I have a practice the next day or a game. So I went with the Invisalign aligners. Um, I can pop them out, have a snack, toss them back in. Uh, all of my teammates have them as well, so I'm able to follow along on their journey as long as mine. And, How uh, long do you have to wear it? Um, just a couple months, honestly. Uh, I'm almost done with mine, so my teeth were, were definitely, I wasn't smiling as much as I am now. Um, it's helped me a lot with being comfortable with my smile and being super happy, and uh, it's been fun treatment. So do you basically, you start to use it, and there is an end date in in mind Correct, yes. when you start it. Yep. Yeah, they give, they give you however, depending on how um, how your teeth are and what you're trying to accomplish, they give you a start date and then an end date of, of what you can do. Yeah. Uh, TJ, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. And um, I wish you a much longer and, uh, and successful career. And I really hope that you, when you get out of the game, you were able to leave a trail the way your brother did. Thank you very much. That's the goal for sure. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. My thanks to TJ Watt. Uh, looking forward to seeing him uh, have another banner year. Uh, and for Mike Tomlin to, again, uh, confound people like me who thought that this might be actually the first time that Mike Tomlin ever has a non-winning record, uh, or I'm sorry, ever has a losing record. And uh, boy, he sure uh, confounded me this year. Um, so let's get to some of the league issues as we semi-preview the offseason here. And let's start with the fate of Lamar Jackson. We are two weeks away from the time that uh, NFL teams have to decide whether they are going to put a franchise tag on a player. And I have said all along that my gut feeling is that Baltimore is likely to franchise Lamar Jackson. And if so, it will be done to see how much interest there is out there in Lamar Jackson, and if somebody would be willing to make them a mega trade for Lamar Jackson. We'll see, but I don't see them getting a new deal done in the next two weeks. Miles? Yeah, and frankly, if you're Lamar Jackson, why wouldn't you want to go out there and test the market if you can with that non-exclusive franchise tag, which I think you know we're all kind of assuming that's what Baltimore would use for Lamar Jackson. And, you know, that way everybody kind of gets an understanding of what that market is for him, you know, where he can go and negotiate with other teams. And if they happen to reach an offer sheet, then Baltimore can either match it or they don't. So I I think that it probably at this point behooves all parties for that to be the case. Now we'll see what that means for Jackson on a sort of open market. Cause it's not quite the open market because Baltimore can match it. But when you're not just hearing from Eric DaCosta and the Baltimore executives on what it is that your value is, and then, you know, you go and hear from somebody else, maybe that shifts somebody else's perspective. It, it could shift Jackson's perspective. It could shift DaCosta's perspective for the Baltimore Ravens. So this is a really interesting period now that we're going to go through with somebody who is one of the league's best young quarterbacks. Yeah, I think, I think what is interesting about this is, you know, I've heard an awful lot of people who are in the sports media business, you know, urging team X, Y, or Z to jump out and go get Lamar Jackson which I think it would be tempting too. He's still very young. Uh, He has not had the best receiving core. He's had an excellent tight end and a good offensive line. Um, But I do think when I look at uh, the landscape, one thing I never hear people talk about is the fact that over the last two years, Lamar Jackson has missed 34% of the snaps due to injury. He makes his living in part with his legs. He exposes Mm -hmm. himself to a lot of punishment. So I don't know how that can't be in consideration. And for those, you know, urging, um, well, for those urging their team or the team that they love to go either 
you know, sign Lamar Jackson to an offer sheet with a huge amount of guaranteed money, which someone may do. Um, to do that in the vacuum uh, without understanding that in the two most recent seasons, he's missed a third of playing time due to injury. Uh, and again, it could be that he will be pristinely healthy over the next few years. But usually when you start getting hurt as a quarterback, you continue getting hurt as a quarterback. We'll see if that if that takes place. But I just say proceed with caution. Uh, Aaron Rodgers right now is, uh, I would assume at some point this week, he is likely to announce whether he intends to play football this year. And if so, uh, as Bob McGinn uh, of... Uh, Tyler Dunn's go-long sub-stack said the other day that the Packers, he believes, this is Bob McGinn, are done with Aaron Rodgers. And look, they might be, and they might be sick of Aaron Rodgers, uh, and they might want him to devote more time in the off-season to him, uh, to the uh, off-season program and to developing a rapport and chemistry with a new set of receivers I could see that, but I also can see the fact that it's going to be difficult to trade Aaron Rodgers, who obviously is owed $59.4 million this year, uh, and I doubt, especially if the new team, the team that trades for Aaron Rodgers is expected to pay most or all of the bill for this year, how much really would they be willing to to uh, give in compensation for him. You have any gut feeling now which way the Aaron Rodgers derby goes, Miles? Well, I mean, especially when you hear somebody like Bob McGinn say what he said, you know, and somebody who has been around as long as he has and covered things as long as he has, you you kind of feel like, whoa, okay, that's that that that'll make you stand up a little bit straighter in your chair, you know, when you hear something like that. Yeah. So I. I feel like either Aaron Rodgers is not going to play or he's not going to be playing for the Packers. Now, where he then goes, that's a great open question. I mean, certainly the Raiders, you would think, would be interested. The Jets would probably be interested. And there are probably a handful of other teams, you know, because there is just so much quarterback turnover that we're probably going to get in this offseason that would also um, be interested in Aaron Rodgers. So, you know, we'll see what he says. And, you know, Aaron Rodgers is the kind of person where when he starts talking, there are going to be headlines out of it because that's just the kind of newsmaker that he is um, given his stature as a quarterback in the NFL. So I think it will be interesting to see what kind of divorce this ends up being because it can be amicable if Aaron Rodgers says I'm going to retire and then he ends up staying retired, right? Unlike Tom Brady last year or Brett Favre years and years and years ago. Or, you know, we see that he says, all right, I want to keep playing and I don't want to play here anymore. And then, you know, we start getting a frenzy quarterback derby, which also would be interesting and probably good for those of us in our business, Peter. So it's certainly going to be worth watching whatever it is that Aaron Rodgers says he wants and and then whatever ends up happening from the Packers standpoint. You know, Miles, um, in 2006, Drew Brees signed a six-year, $60 million contract as a free agent to play for the New Orleans Saints, led them to a Super Bowl win, obviously, and to 
uh, a lot of great days uh, over his career in New Orleans. So that's six years, $60 million. Aaron Rodgers, in essence, um, is going to make, if he plays, $60 million over six months. And if, if nothing tells you about how the economics in the NFL have changed, that's over one generation. It's over one generation. That's over 17 years. That's it. And as I think about that, the more I think about it, and look, I don't have any idea what Aaron Rodgers is going to do. But I know that most people, regardless of the amount of wealth they have, unless we're talking Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, um, you know, Bill Gates, I think if you could earn $60 million for six months of work, I would think that that's something that you would be very, you'd be hard pressed to walk away from. And Sign look, me up, man. You know, the last thing, yeah, the last thing I'll say about this is that, you know, I wrote about the looming NFL schedule over the weekend, which obviously, wisely, um, is not going to be announced for three more months. But one of the things I learned over the weekend is that I think it is highly, well, I'd, I'd say it's likely. Say it's likely. If Aaron Rodgers somehow gets traded to the Las Vegas Raiders, that I think if I were in Vegas and I could put a bet down on the opening game, I doubt they do this, even these weirdo sports books these days. Uh, what are the odds on the first game of the season? Uh, in my feeling, I would bet, a good amount of money on Las Vegas at Kansas City to be that game to be played on, let me just look, September 7th, which is the opening Thursday night of the season. But we shall see. Miles, let's go to a team that hasn't been in much of the news in the last few weeks, and that's the New York Giants. Over the weekend, I live in New York, and it was reported that... um, Daniel Jones has changed agents and the theory being that, um, you know, he may be now looking for, since the Giants would like to sign him for more than a year, that if they do want to sign him for more than a year, he wants to make market money for the really good quarterbacks in the league, you know, in the 40 to 45 million range. And I don't know if that's true or not. That is the speculation. We shall see. But, I think what I would say if I were the Giants is that I'd clearly rather franchise Daniel Jones, risk him being ticked off, and then have him play under the franchise tag this year and say, hey, listen, if you have a great year, then we know we're going to have to pay you near the top of the market. But we are not ready to pay you at, at the top of the market after having a very good season in uh, 2022, but after having before that some very up and down seasons. In essence, if I'm Joe Shane, if I'm Brian Dable, my attitude would be, hey, we like you. We're not sure we want to marry you for the next five years. So let's be reasonable or we're just going to franchise you. And the way Daniel Jones is, 
He may be feeling something else deep down inside, but they know he's going to work his rear end off to be a good player and will not be an attitude case, even if he does, you know, wildcat strike part of the offseason program because of this. What's interesting to me, Peter, is at some point we're going to get a quarterback that takes a mid-market contract, right? Whether it's Daniel Jones, whether it's a Derek Carr, but there's got to be some middle ground here between, you know, always setting the top of the market like the elite quarterbacks are going to do. And then, you know, being a one-year guy that makes whatever, 20 million to 17, 20 million, whatever it is, right? I mean, there's going to be some middle tier where the quarterback is going to average 30 to $35 million a year. So is Daniel Jones that guy? I guess we'll see. But I mean, if you're him and, you know, right now you are set to become a free agent, why wouldn't you say, if if for no other reason than a negotiating tactic, I want top of the market money. Of course you would. Why wouldn't you? So the Giants have a decision to make, right? Whether they're going to franchise him and, you know, you, you got to prioritize the quarterback. So I don't see why they wouldn't. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, you've got to start thinking, man, who's going to be that guy that takes the middle tier quarterback contract? Because we've seen in the past where, you know, whether it's Carson Wentz, whether it's Jared Goff, you know, the guy takes the top of the market deal and then a year later or so the team comes to regret that decision. And then it's like, man, what are we going to do? And then you have to get rid of that contract and get rid of that player. And, you know, it doesn't mean that the player is a bad player. Look at what Jared Goff is doing now in Detroit, but it means that that player might not be that fit for the organization anymore. And I think if you are the giants, you want to proceed with that kind of caution because of the history that you have, of seeing Daniel Jones play, you know, he played well in 2022. There's no disputing that, but you don't know exactly if that's going to be consistent or not. So I agree with you where you're saying, you know, we like you, but we don't know if we want to marry you quite yet. We need to keep going on a few more dates, you know, make sure that everything is right here. And I don't see any problem with the giants taking that approach. If you were Derek Carr, where would you sign and would you try to sign before you know what Aaron Rodgers is going to do? In other words, would you try to force the Jets' hand and say, hey, listen, like if I were Derek Carr of all the teams out there, I think I'd like to sign with the Jets because Mm -hmm. they've they've got a very good defense and they've got a head coach who is going to make absolutely sure that long-term he's going to have the weapons, and he's got a general manager too, that he's going to have the weapons to be able to do that. Plus, you don't have to trade anything for Derek Carr. I think if I were the Jets, I'd probably be more inclined to go for Carr. But who who would you want if you were Carr? Probably the Jets just because we know that that team looked a quarterback away from really being a solid contender. I mean, they had a defense that was very, very good last year, you know, and they've got weapons on offense. You're talking about Garrett Wilson, Corey Davis is good. Um, You know, you got the good running back tandem back there as soon as Brees Hall gets healthy again. So, I mean, it's not like there aren't tools and weapons there for Derek Carr to be successful. Now, 
you know, when it comes to kind of being in front of the Aaron Rodgers train, we'll see what happens this week when it comes to Aaron Rodgers and talking or not talking and decision-making and all of that. So who knows? But I mean, I don't think Derek Carr is a bad quarterback. I think in the right situation, Derek Carr can be a very, very good quarterback. I think we saw in 2021 how his leadership really helped keep the Raiders together and propelled them to a playoff appearance. And it gave the Bengals all that they could handle in that game in the wild card round. So, no, it didn't work out with Josh McDaniels this year in the Las Vegas Raiders. I, I think that there's still something there with Derek Carr and the other element of it is that he's a lot younger than Aaron Rodgers. And so in theory, you're at least getting a guy who's still in his prime and still has some really good years ahead of him. That just may not be one year, perhaps two years, whatever it is, you know? So, I mean, I think that we, you know, the reports were out there that the, the rate, the jets had a really good visit with Carr. Great. If that's the case, then that's a situation where, you just go go down the aisle, you know. We're gonna continue the New York yeah. uh, football teams dating analogies. Like j- just just go and do it because there might not ever be a better opportunity for either one of you. I'll tell you if that happens, if he signs with the Jets, I think the overwhelming favorite to trade for Rodgers would be Vegas. Yeah. How interesting would that be to have two Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes games a year? I, I mean, for maybe two, maybe a couple of years. That would really be fun. It would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, let's. What was your reaction to Jonathan Gannon telling me that he wants to put Kyler Murray under center? Um, who knows how many more plays? But obviously, Kyler Murray was the quarterback in the NFL last year who had the highest percentage of his snaps. You know, like ninety six percent was in shotgun. Um, obviously that's the preferred method of delivery from Cliff Kingsbury. What do you think of Jonathan Gannon saying, we want Kyler Murray to be, to be able to do both. I I hope he can see is my first reaction. And I I don't mean that really in a pejorative way. I mean, it's, it's an issue with his height that he has to be able to see and read the defense. And when you are a couple yards behind the center, it makes that process that much easier, right? So I think that there certainly is a a benefit to being under center more and making defenses think about things a little bit more, especially when it comes to the play action game. I like quarterbacks being under center for that reason, you know, but I think that what's, what's great for Kyler Murray and, you know, what, what he's comfortable with, we'll, we'll see if that really fits because it's not really something that he's done all that much of. Um, But, you know, it's one of those things that can add an element to the offense. And if I'm Jonathan Gannon, yeah, I understand why that's something that he wants to do. You got to give defenses more to think about with a quarterback, as he termed it, that can be a real, real problem. I think what I find interesting about it is I'm – I think that Jonathan Gannon in publicly discussing this is telling the teams of the NFC West, you got to prepare for a different Kyler Murray this year. And no matter what he, what they actually call during the game, they're creating a little bit more work for their, their opponents. And who knows, maybe against the 49ers this year, 
He goes under center 40 times with Kyler Murray. I mean, I doubt it, but I mean, who knows? But the fact is right now that Steve Wilkes and that defense uh, and and Kyle Shanahan in an umbrella kind of way are going to have to at least prepare for that. So I think that's part of why they're doing it. But I also think it makes sense just from the standpoint of why would you limit yourself to one, almost exclusively one formation? So I think it's okay. I I think I, I really do think it's okay. Let me ask you two quick things before we go about the draft. Almost all of these mock drafts now without trades are basically making one and two uh, Georgia defensive lineman <clears throat> Jalen Carter to the Bears at number one and uh, Bryce Young, the quarterback from Alabama, number two to the Houston Texans. Now, none of us really know this. Both of us will be at the scouting combine. We'll start sniffing around about this. Gut feeling right now. Do uh, Does Chicago and Houston end up in late April picking one and two, or do one or both of them trade that pick before the draft? I think that there's going to be a trade because I think in such a quarterback-driven league where you've got these young guys who, you know, and Patrick Mahomes, he's already won two Super Bowls. Joe Burrow looks like he's on pace to win a Super Bowl sooner than later. Now, Jalen Hurts had a tremendous performance in the Super Bowl, aside from the one fumble that turned into a touchdown. Now, Josh Allen still exists. Right? There are so many good young QBs, and it's such a QB-driven league that I, I find it hard to believe that QBs won't, that multiple QBs won't go in the top five with one of them starting at number one overall. So I think that the Bears are going to end up trading that pick, even though, you know, Jalen Carter looks like he could be an all-world defensive tackle. And who knows, maybe they still end up with him with a lower pick because everybody else is thinking, man, I got to get my QB and the bears don't think they need to do that because they already have Justin Fields. But I, my gut feel right now is that it will not be the bears selecting at number one overall. If I were the bears, I wouldn't be selecting number one overall, unless I fell massively head over heels in love with Jalen Carter. And again, look, I don't watch much college football, so I can't tell you if Jalen Carter is, Warren Sapp plus 10% of greatness. I don't know. But I will only say that, you know, the road is littered with an awful lot of guys who everybody said were going to be transcendent talents. Um, There's just no guarantee for any of these. I mean, look at Jordan Davis with the Eagles. He started off strong, got hurt, and really kind of disappeared by the end of the year. Who knows what his future is? It might be great. But I am always in the Jimmy Johnson philosophy. I would always rather have more picks, even if that translates to less of at least one very high pick. Because I just believe that you have a better chance uh, when you increase your odds by having more picks. It's what I think... I'll make this prediction right now. I think the Rams are going to end up with four more picks. I don't even know what number they have right now. They got a few, but they're going to end up with four more picks because I believe they will end up trading their early second round pick 
uh, which is their first pick in this draft. Uh, there's been some noise now. J- uh, Jalen Ramsey even talked about it, that he might be traded. I will not be mm-hmm. surprised if they use a very big piece like Jalen Ramsey to get, let's say, what if what if right now the Rams got offered a two and a three? And I don't mean a bottom of the round two and a three for Jalen Ramsey. What if, for instance, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs offered them maybe even better than a two and a three? And I don't know what that is, but offered them, you know, something significant for Jalen Ramsey. If I were the Rams, I would very, very seriously consider it. Yeah, I would too. I mean, yeah, I mean, one, what, 131 and then, I don't know, 331 or 332, I guess it would be at that point because the Miami Dolphins pick is still back in it. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, the other part of that 131 is, I mean, you, you get the fifth year option on the on the contract which is something that the rams you know haven't really done in a very 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 long time since 2016 was their last first round pick with jared goff so yeah it's something that they definitely have to consider miles uh next week when we speak you will be in indianapolis at the scouting combine i'll be joining you a couple of days after that Um, And we're going to get into the scouting combine. Our guest next week on the show will be Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network. I always go to Daniel Jeremiah at this time of the year. Just like before that, I used to go to Mike Mayock. And I used to throw myself on the mercy of the court and say, I know nothing. And I used to say, please, take the next 30 minutes and absolutely, totally educate me about where we are, who's going to get picked, what's the strengths, what the weaknesses. So listen, if you're like me and you have very marginal knowledge of who's going to get picked first the last week of April, join the Peter King Podcast next week. Experience the Peter King Podcast next week and you will learn everything you need to know going into the scouting combine from the guru himself, Daniel Jeremiah. So... That's it for this week's Peter King Podcast. Appreciate everybody joining me. Thank you, Miles. We'll be right back here again next week with another edition of the Peter King Podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.